Hello, and welcome to the Theology Podcast. I am not C.R. Wiley, and we are here today recording at the PCA General Assembly. Um, I am Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and a retired history professor. And I'm here with a couple of guests and Tom Price. So, Tom. Yep, I am Tom Price, not C.R. Wiley. <laughs> he is here, but not here. Uh, I teach systematic theology, I teach ethics and philosophy, and we are joined by some great guests. I'll let them introduce themselves, so starting with uh, you, Doug. Doug Grotheis. I am professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, where I've served for 30 years, and uh, interested in aesthetics and philosophy, religion, and just about everything else. So I I horned into this discussion about aesthetics and architecture. Happy to be here. And I'm David Stalker. I'm an architect in Dallas, uh, Texas. I'm happy to be hosting the Theology Podcast a bit in, uh, in Memphis here. We had a great time uh, yesterday and happy to have them at my booth today. Excellent. Yes, and the inspiration from our topic, uh, for our topic for the day comes actually from uh, being here with David Stalker who is an architect and who is really interested in the issue of church architecture, what church architecture says, what it communicates, all of those kinds of things. And that brings us to our broader topic, which is the idea of beauty. Um, when we think of you know, sort of the major philosophical categories, we usually get metaphysics, what's real, uh, epistemology, what do we know, what is truth, how do we know things, uh, and ethics, what is right and wrong. But we often forget the fourth category that is historically vitally important to philosophy, and that's aesthetics, uh, the idea of beauty. Um, and really, when you go back to the, the Greek transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, the beautiful is considered one of the central elements of reality and something that is terribly important, and yet we largely ignore it. Uh, we don't really talk about beauty. We don't think of it uh, in any kind of an absolute sense. You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, the question that I have is, is it? You know, it, it, it talks in scripture about the beauty of God, the beauty of holiness. If beauty is only in the eye of the beholder, how do you get God as, as beauty? How do you get a holiness as beauty? So there has to be something objective to it. So that's the point I'd like to start with. And uh, since we've got people who are far more qualified to talk about it than I am, I'm going to kick it over, well, let's say to Doug. Okay. Well, it is very important to consider beauty as something objectively real. And it's interesting, uh, some of you listening to this read The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and that's a critique of subjectivism and relativism in values. And he begins with an aesthetic example about a waterfall. Is the waterfall pretty or is the, water, the waterfall sublime? And he's critiquing the views of someone who says it's neither, it's just in how you perceive it. So you have certain feelings about the waterfall. It doesn't have any objective qualities or attributes. And Lewis thinks that's a huge category mistake because you're putting the evaluation in the subject and you're not considering the object, which is the beauty of the natural world and how to rightly describe the beauty of the natural world. And then, of course, we also have the beauty of buildings and paintings and poems and things like that. And I find uh, Christians often or typically will hold to moral absolutes, especially in the Reformed tradition. We talk about the 
Ten Commandments as moral absolutes and so on. But a lot of Christians, when it comes to art and aesthetics, are relativists mm -hmm. and pragmatists. Well, how should we design our church so people will come? So it'll look like a mall, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or uh, it's, it's a big space with a great sound system, and if we have to sell the church, we can sell it as a warehouse, <laughs> as a pastor once told me. <laughs> so I think Christians need to be more reflective on unifying the good, the true, and the beautiful in the very character of God, and we want to be truthful people, good people, and we should be people who esteem and bring uh, real beauty into the world. And I, I think connected with that is the strong emphasis that we are an incarnational faith. Um, and I want to draw extreme conclusions from that, but one of the points is the way in which creation was created to manifest and manifest the glory and the beauty that God is. And so there is something about creation when it is ordered to the Trinity the right way that refracts the beauty that God is, but also the beauty that creation is as God's creature. And I think what you have with a Christian incarnational vision grounded in scripture is that you have one that renews and retrieves the creation to reflect that kind of Trinitarian beauty and glory again as it centers in Christ. And so the patterning and form of architecture, for example, when ordered that way, also becomes a space that, in a sense, can refract God's glory in a particular way because it is oriented to him and open to him in a very real and, and uh, openness to that transcendental. My, uh, my world of architecture actually begins with people's homes, mm -hmm. uh, and no one ever, I mean, they come and actually they really have a longing for beauty yeah. in their own house. They know this is what can transform my life. So as, as I, in my architecture firm, I start with actually a beautiful doorknob. So uh, if you make a beautiful doorknob, it makes a beautiful bedroom. Mm -hmm. And a beautiful bedroom makes a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, family space. And a beautiful family, uh, uh, the house makes a beautiful yard. And a beautiful yard makes a beautiful neighborhood. Hmm. A beautiful neighborhood makes a beautiful uh, city. And, you know, a beautiful city makes a beautiful state and country. Yeah. So, it, But I tell people, it all begins with a doorknob. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is literally considering something that you actually feel very small, maybe actually very insignificant. Um, along the way, but it is uh, it's, it is a transforming, it, in, in my world of doing people's homes, it is one of the most transforming things they, they do, uh, creating beauty for themselves. You know, what, what that makes me think of, I, I want to get back to your comment on beauty uh, and glory in a minute, but what, what that makes me think of is if you look at the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, the Peter Jackson movies, uh, whatever you may think of them as movies or whatever, one of the things that's remarkable about it is the attention to detail in the sets that they've created. Um, you know, they have a, a sort of a philosophical outlook, okay, elves do this, dwarves do that, and so on. But every tiny bit of it is, they, they work the detail into it. Even in things that you don't really even see on film, they're still there mm -hmm. as part of supporting the, the, the uh, atmosphere and, and the, the feel of the sets. And that attention to small detail is one of the things that makes those films so incredibly successful and immersive. 
Um, and frankly, you know, in, with a lot of it, that attention to detail is also built around beauty. So, and so it's, and it's, if you look, I mean, my wife and I, Jenna, uh, Jennifer, we go, we garden, and just the like God just overdoes this detail. He's just <laughs> really just showing off because there's so much deep detail, Glenn, mm -hmm. in just being in nature. I mean, when you and if you zoom in tighter, it gets even more detail, mm -hmm. and so it's like endless. It's a beautiful idea because a, a movie set is set up, and it has to have this depth of detail, and clearly God. Is just showing off in his, I mean, it's his glory. I know it's his glory, but it goes so, so deep. Yeah, uh, Calvin described the universe as the theater of God's glory. Yeah. And I was really intrigued by, by, Tom, by your use of the word glory, because when we talk about beauty, you know, we have this idea that it's subjective. It's what I like, you know, so... Um, you know, one person likes classical music, another person likes jazz, another person likes rap, although I'm not sure that's really music. Um, you know, pe people have different tastes, and we, you know, so we can, because of that, we, we think of, of beauty as, a, as simply a matter of taste. But if you change the word beauty to glory, yeah. it, it changes things completely, because I don't think anybody out there could conceive of glory as something that isn't beautiful. So, so when you shift the focus and start talking about God's glory or the, the display of God's glory in nature, you're automatically incorporating the idea of beauty, and that again points to the fact that it's an objective thing. Yeah, that, it's it's interesting because one of the, I think one of the major figures in retrieving aesthetics in the, the theological world in the modern period was uh, Hans uh, Urs von Balthasar, and he named several of his key volumes in his theology the glory of God. And he was retrieving aesthetics that way, the kabod, right? The weight of, of this, the weight of this glory is, Lewis has done something very similar. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is this, the fact that there, I, I heard it put a different way, there is no ugly creature. Now, there are some we kind of respond to as ugly, like a kind of yeah. slimy worm or anything like that. But really, like you say, David, when you start to look at, all of the different features, patterns, forms, connectedness, purposes, tied into every little thing. There is such a, I mean, it goes, it keeps going and it keeps going and it almost becomes endless how profound all of these things, both connected and by themselves are. And yet the source is the same. And, and no creaturely thing can fully refract what God is in God's mm. glory and beauty by, by nature. But each one of these things in a sort of, sort of patterned harmony does give us some glimpse of that richness that God is. And I think what the family is, is noticing is they may not be able to think about it theologically, especially if they're not Christian or, or, some, or even philosophically, but they have a creaturely sense that beauty, form, detail, ordered in some ways and not others, brings a joy and a participation in life that is fundamentally different than just the functional or the utilitarian. Mm -hmm. I think it's important too when, you, when we think about beauty and the evaluation of uh, objects or nature to realize that we can make mistakes. Uh, we can make mistakes in mathematics, we can make mistakes in morality, and we can also make mistakes in aesthetic judgments. But we tend to think in American society that Aesthetic judgments are purely hedonic and relative, and you really can't make a mistake. So people say, well, you like what you like. Mm -hmm. 
or beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I say, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it's not only in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if you're looking at something or listening to something beautiful, you are taking in an objective fact of the world, and then you're recognizing it as such. So there are a lot of art forms that require skill to understand. Uh, they don't just necessarily immediately grab you. But pop culture, the sensibility of it, is all about the hook, grabbing, mm. you know, getting your attention, getting you to move your body around because you hear something. But a lot of art, and I'm thinking of uh, music like jazz or church architecture, which we can talk more about, takes some refinement to understand it. And it's like if you are a connoisseur of coffee, you'll be able to know the spectrum of quality of coffee. Now, I'm not a connoisseur of coffee. I'm basically, I need my caffeine and I need it now. But uh, one of my students is a connoisseur of coffee and he brought in this coffee. He said, Dr. Gardas, this is the very best coffee. Oh. And I tasted it and I said, yeah, it's coffee. It's because I'm an ignoramus. You know, I don't know anything about coffee. But it doesn't mean there's not terrible, better, and, and really good coffee. But it takes skill to develop an awareness of the, these objective qualities. And we miss out on so much of life if we think that aesthetics or what we take to be beautiful is all subjective, relative, and pragmatic. There's way more to it than that. Yeah. Another thing that's worth noting is that aesthetics connects in, all, all branches of philosophy are interrelated. So your metaphysics, your epistemology, your ethics, all interact with your idea of beauty. And I think this is one of the things that, that helps explain why people decide one thing is beautiful or they, they like one thing or their taste goes in one direction. It's because it connects in with you know, their, their, uh, their ethical stance, their values, all, all of these kinds of things, so that the things that they are drawn to or the things that they, they appreciate are things that are connected with these other values that they've already adopted. You know, I'm thinking here uh, about, um, you know, uh, bikers or goths or whatever that have skulls and, and chains and all of these kinds of things, um, and that typically are going to listen to something like death metal or whatever. And to them, this is something that they find really attractive. I don't think it's because they aesthetically necessarily think that it's beautiful. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. it's because it connects into other parts of how they think, their view of the world and that kind of thing. So that it stops being as much an ethical question, excuse me, an aesthetic question mm -hmm. and more a question of chosen values. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, everything has rules to it. In jazz, there's still chords, scales, and arpeggios. Yeah. In architecture, there's scale and proportion. There's orders that have been developed over time. There's proportional systems, the golden yeah. section. There are things to objective things yeah. to help create some judgment by. I say in my firm, I want you to learn all the rules before you can break the rules. Yeah, so if you don't know the rules, I'd rather yeah. have you not break the rules. It's like grammar. Yeah, you want to be a good writer, you have to know the rules of grammar. And you work within those rules. There's lots yeah. of room for creativity <laughs> using good grammar. Yeah. And there's lots of room for creativity using the good rules, the received tradition of, of architecture as well. Yeah. But you can't bypass that in the name of, well, I just need to express myself. Yeah, That's the bane of contemporary culture. Yeah. 
everything comes down to self-expression because the yeah. self can never be yeah. judged or yeah. refined. Well, it's just my authentic self, and you have to listen to the uh, mm -hmm. volcanic upsurge of my yeah. beautiful self constantly. But, you know, the self becomes good by submitting to truth. Yeah, it's the, it, it, I mean, it, we talk about it oftentimes in, in, in theology and philosophy with, you know, the significance of formal and final causality that the form, the created natures we have are ordered when they're oriented towards truthful enactment of themselves. To be a creature is truthful enactment of what we're created yeah. to be, right? Yeah. And that form and that end are significant, but there's all kinds of wide-ranging options in that enactment are different, for example, for each different human. So it's not about just self-expression going nowhere, but it's a self-expression ordered towards what it means to truly be a creature. And I, I think similarly, the form bound up with shaping space and configuring order in our lives, when it is oriented towards what the fulfillment of and significance of that for family and life and flourishing in relationship to God and each other, then it then you have all these wide places for creativity that don't get lost in breaking the rules. Because those what it means to be created is to be formed and oriented. So you're working with creation even when you kind of go and play within its ramifications where someone who breaks the rules and doesn't know them, they don't even know what we're created to be. So they are this amorphous self running nowhere. And it's like an amorphous building, I guess, or church shaped to nothing, you know? <laughs> I, I think this has got important implications. I mean, where I see this most is with children. Um, you know, um, there, there's this idea it might be the era in which I grew up, but there's, there's this idea that you give children a blank piece of paper and tell them to do a picture. <laughs> you, you have no, you know, they have to come up with what they're gonna do. They don't have the skill to really do it really well. I remember being really frustrated when I was trying to draw as a little kid because I couldn't get five fingers on a hand. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of these kinds of things. Whereas the, the classical approach would be to teach kids to copy things, to, to learn how, well, you know, another example, uh, and I think I've used this here before, coloring books. You know, the, the big thing for a while was having kids color outside the lines. Don't, you don't have to color in the lines. So what they do is they just scribble all over the picture because that's creativity. <laughs> coloring books are not about creativity. No. Coloring <laughs> books. about copying. Yeah, well, col coloring <laughs> books. filling in. Yeah, it's about developing the fine muscle control mm. by filling in between the lines so that you have the skill to be able to write later. That's what they're for. People don't understand this. They think it, you know, creativity would be don't, don't stay in the lines. No, that's nonsense. You have to develop basic skills before you can exercise creativity in a in an effective and proper way and that's just something that you know it and i think this ties into the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder because what that means is beauty is whatever you think it is so creativity is completely freeform and yeah. and it, it's it's a mistake across the board it's kind of it becomes nihilistic and, and and so david if we were to move that into the from homes ordering beauty to the way people yeah well the way to think about beauty, space, and form with the building of churches. 
big, big step there, but also sure. a lot of things similar. Yeah. I mean, there is, of course, uh, I guess a history and a tradition in which the church yeah. has already kind of set patterns and reformed sure. patterns and the like, but there has to be some basics there. Um, could you maybe help us, help us along with some of those basics, that, that, those so, forms that have to be there? Sure. I mean, uh, one thing I would say, one, biblically, the church starts in a garden yeah. and ends in a city. Yeah. So uh, there's a continuum along the line, and we're, yeah. Yeah. we don't know sometimes where we are in that continuum. Yeah. We, we, there were a time that, cathedr- that gardens were formed that yeah. turned into cathedrals. Yeah. Uh, wow. we, we've lost those. You know, sometimes now we may need to start with a garden. Yeah. Uh, you know, beautiful spaces. Um, we've lost so much. I yeah. mean, modernity has kind of destroyed the system. I mean, any thought will do. Nothing yeah. has meaning. Uh, it it's not, doesn't really apply. But right now, the best, most beautiful place to be married is in a tent in a garden. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, we don't get married in churches anymore. But, yeah. hey, it's, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the restart of yeah. Christians thinking about beauty doesn't have to be in their space. It could be in the garden that comes into maybe their more, you know, bad 1950s building and just kind of rethinking of the doorknob again. Yeah. Start with the doorknob. Start with the small little beautiful things. I know Chris, who's not here, but uh, if you all remember, he designed his own pulpit yeah. and had it built and yeah. carved, and it's a special piece. George Grant yeah. told us yesterday about his pulpit. So, yeah. I mean, so much of beauty to me, the rebuilding of beauty Right. Seems like we start with the big thing, which is way overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, now, if we really think about cathedrals, if you divide the hundred years it takes to get there yeah. by a little bit of uh, each year, you actually get to have a really wonderful cathedral. Yeah. In a hundred years, yeah. like yeah. they used to do it. Yeah. In a yeah. hundred years, it's it's a long-term thinking. Uh, but it always begins with the small, beautiful things. So. Now, with cathedrals, they start, I mean, because the doors are very significant, at least the ones I've been to in Europe, especially Italy. Huge doors. I mean, there's definitely, a, there's something going on with the notion of space right from the start. Where do they typically start with cathedral? Of course, the ground level. But, but you know, is it, like you said, a move from a garden to just creating a ground space and then building from there? Or, you know, is was there? I, I mean, I don't know much about the history of it. Yeah, you, you actually have to have to even start before there. You have to start with the orientation of the building. Yeah. yeah. So the way a traditional cathedral was, uh, you know, the first step uh, started on Easter Sunday, where the bishop would stand there with his crozier, with his staff, <laughs> and as the sun rose, it would cast a shadow, and that shadow determines the line of the nave, the line of the main part of the church because the east, east. Is, is symbolically where Jerusalem is. Yeah. Yeah. And so the apse, where the main altar is, is going to always be on the east because Solomon prayed that when people pray toward your temple, God hear their prayer. Yeah. So you put the altar to the east because it's symbolically toward Jerusalem. And when you pray, you pray toward the altar, which means you're praying toward Jerusalem where the temple was and God will hear your prayer. Um, it's, it's also connected with the idea of the cathedral being a picture of the New Jerusalem. That has to do with, with later things going on. It has to do with the main doors being to the west. Yeah. Because the west is where the sun sets. 
that's the end of the day, therefore it's symbolic of the end of time. And when you enter the cathedral, you're entering the new Jerusalem at the end, end of, time. of time. All of this symbolically. It starts with compass direction. Compass, no. that's it, yeah. And then it starts with location as well. We mm -hmm. talked about Sacre Coeur, Notre Dame yesterday. Yeah. Well, where is Sacre Coeur? On top of a hill, yeah. in the middle. I mean, it was the, the New Jerusalem. It was to be seen from miles and miles away. Notre Dame was built in a, you know, yeah. a little island yeah. uh, in the middle of the river. Now, we don't do that. I mean, how, yeah. I mean, most of the time it starts 15 miles out of town, so there's plenty of room for parking and yeah. not kind of right at the core of where everyone is. And then classically, of course, they had some, whether true or mythical, they had connections to originally certain apostles or their deaths or relics. I mean, different things that I know in, in France, you have a lot of these and in Italy very similarly, um, because they wanted to have some kind of also external connection of succession. I mean, yeah, that was very, yeah. very significant. But in any case, it, they, the space was sacred for, for some reason and set apart, and they, and they were very aware that we weren't just dealing with a functional warehouse to get together. Yeah, and, and when you go from there, um, you know, we started off, I, I made a comment right at the beginning about what do churches say. Um, architecture, just like everything else, when you look at it, it communicates something. Um, and when you're looking at the cathedrals, the number of layers of meaning you have embedded in the structure is absolutely stunning. Um, you know, I just gave you the example of compass directions, but we can keep going. Uh, there are so many levels of meaning that are, are encoded in the cathedral. And people with education could walk in and simultaneously see all of these layers of meaning built into the space where they were worshiping. Um, your average peasant, probably not so much, but I don't think we should underestimate how much they got as well. Yeah. Because the architecture itself communicates. And 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 so much of it, I know, uh, Tom, I talked to you about the little parish church that you worshipped in when you were in Oxford. And so, yeah. I mean, it's easy to talk about cathedrals because they, they yeah. get the show. But, I yeah. mean, that parish church yeah. Yeah. in England or yeah. in uh, France or in, you know, Mississippi yeah. or any yeah. place like that is just a wonderful space. Yes. I mean, again, people were buried there. They yeah. grew up in their town. They're yeah. buried right outside yeah, the door. Yeah, on the literal grounds, uh, yeah often a beautiful drawer, beautiful yeah. grounds, a garden, they're in the yeah. midst of a garden. Yeah. So there's so many beautiful things. That's my one, I love cathedrals, they're fantastic. Yeah. But I love the idea of the parish church. Yeah. There's just a lot of embedded meaning yeah. that's very local. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, a great depth there as well. You can spend, I mean, I know the little little church outside of Oxford when I was a student was uh, the St. Mary's of Ifley in Ifley Village. So anyone out there ever goes, make a trip out. But it had all of those elements. But it also had all of it, the rich uh, symbols of meaning within that little parish church. You could spend just as many hours in there as you can in a cathedral, even yeah. the way the floors are marked and oriented. I mean, they didn't waste anything in terms of it not just being a space aimed for beauty and worship, um, but also meaning. I mean, it just they took meaning out of every element. There, it, was, it wasn't just, okay, let's just put a door handle here, like you said. It was, that door handle is a lot of significance. And it, it, it just shows you how meaningful world creation is understood in many places and times of the church, even when most of your population may not have been getting it. 
It was just, uh, it was just something, and it's something every person who went to the parish and every family that grew up there was a part of their meaning world, orienting to God and creation. Yeah, as we were talking earlier about starting with small things to find beauty, I was thinking of uh, a talk I gave in Canada recently, a couple weeks ago at Wycliffe College mm. on the University of Toronto campus. And it's this beautiful old, I think probably 150-year-old uh, college. And it was the place where uh, people would worship. And they had music stands up for the people performing music. And there's this beautiful old pulpit off to the side, and they expected me to come up and put my notes on a music stand. And so I came up and I said, I, I really have pulpit envy here. I, I need that pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a pulpit. It's like probably a hundred-year-old pulpit. And it, it just has more of a sense of centering your attention, and you have the historical object you're relating to, you can hold on to. And I think that added a little bit of beauty, a little bit of gravity in that setting. Uh, as opposed to something purely functional, simple, mass-produced music yeah. stand. I hate music stands anyway. I, <laughs> it's very hard for me to teach from a music stand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my favorite thing is doors. I love doors. It's just a beautiful, beautiful way to you know enter. And churches, you know, had beautiful doors, and not just the door, but just the hardware. Yeah. It kind of uh, yeah. you know spoke to the idea. Uh, Glenn and I were talking yesterday about you know doors 15 foot tall and sometimes these are in these little parish churches yes. they're not necessarily yeah. in the mm -hmm. big cathedral yeah. but just a beautiful piece of it's very um, you know in architecture we use bespoken that's kind of a big word yeah. that we use now but it's just handcrafted i feel i feel the incarnation i feel yeah. hey hey we have been uh where you know uh, man is placed here we craft things for the glory of god and for yeah. the, for his beauty yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump back a couple of episodes to the one on the conversion of the Vikings here. <laughs> um, because it turns out that, you know, in Norway, there are these famous stave churches. that are churches that are built completely of wood. There's not an, a, a single oh, nail nice. in them. They're, yeah. um, and they, they were built actually using shipbuilding technology, mm -hmm. not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. But the, what a lot of people miss is, I, you know, I talked, to, I'm not going to rehash this, but I talked about the myth of Yggdrasil, the, the world tree, and, and the way that gets converted uh, into the cross by early Christians. When you look at the stave churches from the outside, they look like trees. They look like, mm -hmm. like uh, pine yeah. trees. Uh, they're shaped that way. There's a central pillar in the middle of it um, that represents the trunk of the tree. But on the doors, there's ironwork on the doors that tell stories. Mm, and yeah. the ironwork is uh, is really critical to reconstructing what was going on there because when you look at at the ironwork, if you look at it with the knowledge of, of Norse mythology, you can see the references to Norse mythology mm. and Ragnarok that are built into the ironwork on the doors of the church that connected to the hinges and all of that that then take you into the church. Mm. So, uh, you know, again, it's all communicated. Yeah. And you, I think you also, you know, can see from that point that ch churches built in different cultures and places will take the way in which Christianity fulfills the lore and the stories of it. And you do, you do see that in the art patterns that are there. So you actually can see embedded in how significant that material expression of faith and its stories and its connectedness to culture and and all things in God, connect all these things. 
And, and so generations later, I can spend hours walking through those old churches and piece together just by walking through it something of that time and place over generations. And you mentioned how long it can often take, well, the cathedrals. But a lot of these things were, you know, historically built and, and it was uh, families, generations would have been tied to this location. So households, family life, church life, the aesthetic from the households to the church life, we're yeah. all interconnected. This was, and like you said, it, eventually, you know, in the kingdom of God, ultimately, the, the whole of creation. Um, but in a sense, I, I, I mean, it's, it'd probably be interesting because a lot of times, especially in the Protestant world, we can tend to think the build, you know, of course, you know, the, body, the, the temple is the body, right? And it's, you know, no longer will we just worship in Jerusalem, but we, you know, this, you know, everywhere and every mountain, the spirit will be, right? We can all call on the Lord and the temple is now gonna be within us. But that didn't, for, for Christianity, mean that there was no significance to its places of worship. Early on, it had to be pretty functional because it, it was on the run and under persecution. It had to meet in households. And that's significant, too, the households being Ooh. brought into not just, you know, individuals, but also households. Um, but then you start to see, at that time, a lot of Christians still went to the synagogue for their you know, out, out of the home worship. And then eventually start to see transformation of synagogue liturgy under Christian theological convictions as time goes on to where you could go, for example, in an Orthodox tradition who still can hold some of that. And you can see strong parallels in their worship and the way they build their, mm -hmm. their um, you know, their places of worship that have a stronger continuity to the synagogue um, than, you know, we would see, you know, later down the road in Western churches. But nevertheless, even in Western churches, you still have the, the liturgical significance tied to the heart of our worship spaces. And that these things, how we worship, as Scripture spells it out, corporately, and the way that space is oriented, isn't just arbitrary. And I think modernity really came in and bumped things in the world to which we just think we can separate ourselves from it and need to just, it's all individual and within me. So it doesn't matter where we worship or what that space looks like. And I think that is, that's a sad loss. And I think part of what you're doing is trying to retrieve and recover. You know what, there is something important here. Let's start thinking about it again. Yeah, so one of the questions that I would have that's sort of a practical one is, um, you know, most churches, unless they're renting space, and even if in that situation, they've already got a physical building. How do you retrofit it if it is just a, a big box? How do you go about retrofitting it to, uh, to convey meaning? I mean, well, you know, if there's a pastor out there who's asked, I suspect there's some people out there asking yeah. the question, okay, so what do I do about it? I've got <laughs> this building, what do I do? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a huge <laughs> that's question. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, uh, again, it, well, I say it often has to do, the first step is just how you arrange the chairs. I mean, so a simple idea, and maybe look at some different forms. There's a wonderful book that I have here called Christ and Architecture. Uh, that's a, a good uh, beginning point to just look at the way that, especially Reformed churches, have set up their spaces, you know, uh, over time. Uh, 
arrange the chairs, arrange the the uh, the furniture. You know where it says something. Where does the pulpit go? Yeah. Where where is the table? And there's many different. If you Tom, I know you've looked at that book, and you're surprised sometimes at some locations that uh, yeah. uh, things. There's there's some ideas where the communion table's in the midst of the congregation, and there's yeah. kind of a beauty of that idea, and that the table it actually looks more like a table than it yeah. looks like a. We were talking yesterday. The desk that we're at right now. Is, is 30 inches tall, that's kind of a table that yeah. we sit at. But often our communion table is about 36 inches, which is not a table that you ever sit at. Yeah. And so it's got a little bit different meaning in it. Uh, getting light into a space is uh, mm. the acoustics of a space, you know, trying to work with, you know, congregational singing is so important. Those yeah. buildings, they reverberate. It's very hard because when electronics came into play, yeah. you had to deaden all the spaces and then, then you recreate it. But there are systems now, arrays, uh, speakers, that basically you can have wonderful reverberant congregational singing, yeah. but still be able to hear the word when it's preached. So yeah. it's uh, small, small little steps. <clears throat> Yeah, an, an interesting thing that, that that made me think of is in medieval cathedrals again. In these very large spaces, the pulpit is in the middle of the nave. It's in the it's, it's off to the side in the middle of the nave, where, and the altar is is at the focal point. Now, it's Catholic theology. The yeah. altar is really the center of everything. Yeah. But the reason the pulpit is moved down mm -hmm. is so that people can hear. Yeah. You know, if he's preaching from up near the altar, the people in the back, hmm. no electronics, they're not going to hear a thing. Yeah. So you pull the pulpit down into the center of the nave so people can hear. Yeah. yeah. It's no. definitely, there's a third rail of talking about architecture that gets a pastor electrocuted a few times because it's very, you know, you change the church bulletin and they get half the congregation yeah. upset. So, yeah. but it's just great to try to have a conversation. It's, yeah. I mean, and that's why I like it where you all beginning this idea with beauty that you actually cannot have truth. You cannot have beauty if it's, uh, you cannot, you can have, if you have non-beauty, you actually have non-truth at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have non-goodness. Something is array. When you have beauty, you actually you are you are at the the truth point. I think that's something maybe pastors helping their congregation yeah. realize that this is yeah. this is an issue of beauty. It's yeah. it's not you know it's not about gilding the church. Yeah. It's speaking of the glory of God. That's right. And I know there are you know. Protestant world's a big world, and I know there are traditions of, you know, the theology of the cross versus theology of glory, you know, that somehow if we focus on the beautiful, we therefore eclipse the kind of the ugliness of, of you know, the distortion of it. But I think what we're talking about here is the renewal of all things in Christ. The fact that Christ has resurrected and tells us to bring all things into conformity to him, which of course has a negative side of the, the, the side of the cross, which is weaning it all from all of the distortions and perversions of beauty. But we're talking the flip side. We are to be about bringing it into conformity to Christ where, and where his radiance as risen Lord does express itself in the worship that we have as we join together. But I think the other dimension is how significance space is also informing us. Um, because we're talking about incarnation, entering space and time and uh, assuming it and bringing it up into his lordship, 
renewed, that there is something significant in all the material dimensions of our worship. And we tend to kind of focus just on, okay, what does that truth have to say to me cognitively or as a, a kind of spiritually, but don't recognize that the, our, our embodied natures are so much a part of that, that our liturgy worship and all the rest yeah. is part of what having a beautiful space um, and, and think of what it does to catechize your children walking, I mean, walking into a blank space. There's yeah. no catechism there at all uh, yeah. other than word. Beauty catechizes your children as well. Yeah. In beginning a garden, the, the hard work it takes to create a beautiful grounds, the doors, all the stuff. These are the things I remember. I remember yeah. as a kid, yeah. you know, you're this scale and then yeah. <laughs> church seems so big, and then you get big and the church actually seems smaller than what you ever thought it was. But there's so many things that I think we miss I th- when I we think don't deal with that. something very profound there. I'll, I'll never forget, it was an Orthodox theologian. I don't know if it was Florensky or Uspensky. One of them was, grew up in an Orthodox household, but during rigorous atheism in, in the Soviet Union at the time. And he was a strong atheist. He was a mathematician. I don't remember, I don't remember which, which theologian it was. But it was the fact of the beauty of the households around it. Well, of course, in their case, it was a lot of the iconography and, and, and the thing. But he said his house was so beautiful that nothing in his materialistic world was able to make sense of that to where it brought him to embrace Christ and the Trinity. And he really, so to to talk about the significance of beauty as an apologetic and a witness is more profound, you know, in many cases than than we realize, I think. Yeah, I have a second edition of my book, Christian Apologetics, and I added a chapter on the argument from beauty. Yeah. Uh, Because beauty is something that really does grab us and can arrest our attention. And then you have to ask, well, why is that? And can an atheistic, materialistic worldview even explain beauty? Because it really has no function in a materialistic worldview. The only thing they could say is, well, it tends to help reproductive success among animals. You know, talk about reductionism. And that's not going to relate to a sunset or the the beauty of a mountain range or something like that. Just pause here for a second. Why does beauty add to the reproductive success? What Uh you you mean, you know, the the bird is attracted to Uh the plumage. Why is it attracted to the plumage? Because it's beautiful. It's circular. Yeah. It it, it doesn't explain anything. No. It's reductionistic and circular. Yeah. So I think natural beauty and beauty and culture can be used as part of an apologetic for the existence of God as the ultimate artist of the universe and who made us in his image and likeness to be creative. And it can really uh, grab people. For example, I was years ago, I was looking at a beautiful, beautiful sunset with a, a fellow graduate student at the University of Oregon. And he said, when I see something like this, I feel so grateful. And I said, who are you grateful to? Long silence. <laughs> <laughs> and that began some good conversations about God. Yeah. I said, yeah. well, you have to be grateful to someone. You can't be grateful to the universe, can you? Yeah. So we have an object of gratitude for natural beauty. And that can be a way into thinking seriously about our creator and designer. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that is very, I mean, it's fascinating because, I mean, if you think of Paul on, on uh, Mars Hill, and his apologetic. Of course, he is noticing, first of all, their places of worship. And of course, he's going to say, okay, well, God is not containable. 
the whole creation is, is of course, the manifestation of this God. But that is, did not mean the places of worship were insignificant. It meant that God is not contained by them. It meant that the creation, therefore, is a place the whole creation can manifest God's glory. And so you can have buildings made of creation to manifest the glory. It's just that God isn't contained there in a way that it limits God. But actually, when it's ordered the right way, God is manifest through all of it. So it actually can become a defense of it, um, a proper Christian way, and eliminate the bad view of things that God is limited and therefore can only be located in this place. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, an, an, another thing that I think is, is just sort of worth going back to is the question of what our worship spaces communicate. Um, uh, and I, I've, I've done presentations on secularism in the church where I've, I've taken a picture of a worship service in a megachurch where the people are sitting in stadium seats, they're standing up, well, you know, not sitting, but they're stadium seats, they're standing up. There's smoke machines and light, mm. uh, lights and everything else while there's this uh, band on stage performing. And that's supposed to be worship service. Well, so, okay, the question is, what does this communicate? What does this say about, uh, about the church? Um, and remember, there's, there's something we've talked about before. It's the principle that what you win them with is what you win them to. So what are you, win what are you winning them to? And what does this say to the people who are there? Um, you know, you, you look at it, and if I didn't tell you it was a worship service, you'd think it was a concert. Okay, so... Uh, you know, th those are some of the issues that I think we really need to, we really need to deal with. So. Well, the whole idea of, of um, the place of worship as a dedicated sacred space needs to be recovered by the church because there's a lot of the evangelical church that doesn't accept that idea. The idea is make the church as much like the world as possible so people will feel comfortable. You have cafes in them now. You yeah. have, I mean, it's like Starbucks is in them shopping mall and they can pick and choose mm -hmm. all these different things. It really is just, it's just a, con a right. picture of cons the worst parts of consumerism in many right. cases. Right. And what you're talking about, building, David, goes against that whole grain. And no. so just the, the redirection of thinking of architecture this way is a, is a bold testimony to the difference Christ makes. Yeah. I work with some furniture manufacturers on church projects, so they pretty much let me know, in the Protestant world, I better have a cushion on that chair. Uh, they will not tolerate. We, uh, there's a book or something on that, you know, soft <laughs> bottoms. Yeah. Hit mine, soft bottoms, or something like that. So, uh, but, but it's just, there's a piece of, and I, there's something there of how, you know, we want to be very comfortable at yeah. times. I mean, it's certainly an idea of entertainment. We know that there's we're entertaining a person yeah. uh, in that setup. It's a it's. Uh, well, we know. need we need discipline. We need intellectual, spiritual, and aesthetic discipline. And if you just say "come as you are," it's pretty much like the rest of culture, except we talk about Jesus. Well, how different is that? And of course, the gospel has power whenever it's faithfully presented. But is the is the whole space is the liturgy set up? to cause you to attend to sacred things, transcendent sacred 
realities. If it's all set up like popular culture, well, popular culture is the opposite of that. It's all imminent. It's all what will impress you immediately with certain sensations, you know, certain tricks, basically. So I, I really think the idea of, of being uh, catechized, you can be catechized with a formal catechism, but you're also catechized by the kind of space you enter, the architecture, uh, the furniture, the arrangement of the furniture, the kind of music. Door handles. Uh, yeah. Door handles, <laughs> doors. And we know those visuals are yeah. catechized by movies and oh, all yeah. the other things there. Just try to equalize it you know, a little yeah. bit. Well, notice what's happening there is the, the formation of the soul, but the orientation of our senses. And how significant yeah. is that? Everyone's competing for our senses to get a hold mm -hmm. of our, our will and action and, and form us. Right. So what is a commercial doing? It's constantly throwing at you some communication audibly or visually. Oh, yeah. You need this. You want this. And here's something that is actually you need this, you want this, because it actually is something you need and want. And yeah. here is a space that is oriented towards, I mean, you know, I, you know, I'll never, was it Schmeyman who said, we're born hungry, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we hunger, and we're hungry creatures. Yeah. And so, in, in that, you know, all this garden was given to you for you to enjoy and feed you, but it was never this complete feeding. Yeah. And here we're dealing with the It's interesting on the senses because, uh, because like aroma and stuff, what church thinks about the smell as they come in? Guess what? At those high-end stores, they spend hours, years, yeah. thousands mm. and thousands of dollars of the proper smell as you come into uh, mm. the, your, your fancy yeah. high-end goods. In classic, so. classic churches, the, the incense was, uh, the prayers for God were yeah. about the yeah. reorientation. Yeah. Eastern Orthodox yeah. do that. And that yeah. But I think that was something that goes back to the, the, the uh, Old Testament roots. Am I correct? It, yeah. it, it was very, the smell yeah. was very significant. There's probably not much of a budget in the typical <laughs> church for the smell. Yeah. Uh, the, it's the olfactory so, section of yeah, the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in the Old Testament, you have the altar of incense, which was representative of prayer. But you also see this in the book of Revelation, yeah. where, where the saints in heaven right. are offering incense, which is the prayers of the saints, it tells us. Yeah. So th that, that sets the biblical precedent for use of incense in church because the, the smoke of the incense rises, our prayers do as well. It finds yesterday, Glenn, we were talking about the thin spots, you know, where, I mean, it just creates another, when all, when truth, beauty, and goodness are activated, all the sense of are activated, that's to me the thin spot that that's, we see. The, that's right. And I think some people see this as, a, a, when they're not connecting incarnation to transformation of our material spaces, they see it as a competition that somehow to burn incense is to be like a Catholic or an Orthodox and take away from the incarnation. No, when it's done rightly, it's actually being biblical, but it's also because you take the incarnation seriously. Because the incarnation is not in competition with other creaturely things. It's actually mm -hmm. the fulfillment of them. Just like philosophy, rid of its, its, its fallenness, becomes an instrument, a handmaiden of theology, so do material things rid of their idolatry, become oriented to God who is their creator, all dimensions of expressing something of the, the incarnation and his assumption of, of flesh for its redemption. Mm. And I think that's the heart of why we as, you know, Protestants and, and Reformed from the different sides we are, can embrace all of that without having to feel like we're doing something that is, oh, we're, we're going down this particular trail. Yeah. 
Yeah, J- Jamie Smith um, in uh, You Are What You Love talks about uh, how a lot of uh, Protestants, I suspect really think he's thinking reformed here, view us as brains on a stick. <laughs> you know, that, that everything is purely cognitive, everything is purely intellectual and so on, uh, which is actually a kind of Gnosticism. Um, we, you know, we, we kind of ignore the fact that God created us as sensual creatures, meaning we have senses. And all of the senses should be rightly ordered to the love of God. And I would argue, therefore, that they should be um, equally oriented toward the love of God in our churches, in our worship, which means worship should be a more sensory experience than we usually make it out to be. And if you talk about that, people in the megachurches will say, yeah, that's why we've got all these projectors and why we do movie <laughs> clips and stuff like that. <laughs> Gigantic n- speakers. Yeah. yeah, that's not the point. That's not well, what we mean. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, they, they're, they're right on the point that all those dimensions matter. What they're wrong about is the, the other part I was talking about is these things renewed and oriented towards Christ the right way. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, it isn't simply about baptizing culture and then saying you've, mm-hmm. you've converted it and, and sanctified it. Um, and there is something to the bringing all things into conformity to Christ. And I think that's the part. It's not that you can't use, you know, certain kinds of music in worship, but when they're still driven by an anthropology and a fulfillment of the flesh in ways that are disconnected to Christ. And so what we're talking about sort of is sanctified the sanctification of creaturely things for the glory of God, the renewal of them as they're brought into, in order to Christ the right way. And um, that's, you know, again, there will be debates of where that line is and what that looks like, but I think that it's a significant conversation to be having. And I think, Glenn, the point you made a little bit earlier, and I don't know how how much time we got left, but the the point you made is, okay, a lot of people, a lot of churches, you know, they don't have a budget for it yet, and a lot of them are thinking, okay, right now I'm just happy to be able to open a door and close it. I mean, I know we are, you know, I'm, I'm in a bit of a different denomination, but we, our church being faithful to the gospel, lost their beautiful church, met in a, a school for a long time, and now they've been given a church by a folded Baptist church, which is diff- very different from our tradition, um, yet we're going to use that space and we're building on it. Um, we don't probably have that kind of budget, but we are trying to fix it up and clean it up. That's a kind of a step one. So I think, I imagine a lot of churches in those places. Um, and like you said, where, where, where would a good place be? Just start with a door handle? or <laughs> Start with, uh, uh, for sure, start with a door handle. Well, yeah, I lo- well, yeah, I love enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise. Yeah. And- it's not bad to start with that, the yeah. door. Yeah. I mean, uh, doesn't enter enter the glass door with the aluminum hardware that looks terrible with <laughs> Thanksgiving prayer? Well, yes, you can do that. I understand, yeah. but but I I think we over. I mean, modernity wants us to get there very quick. It's just yeah. one thing that we, you know, again, we garden, and gardening takes a lot of cultivation, building the Patience, soil yeah. before you get any of the flowers. Yeah. And so uh, so that's always my encouragement. Start with the littlest things. Yeah. I mean, you know, and sometimes it's a beautiful graphics that you put or banners in a space yeah. can make a you know, space uh, yeah. you know much different so um, 
Yeah. And, and I often think sometimes that, you know, a lot of churches think very practically and they're like, well, why put resources in that direction? And I think if I were to say anything is it is fundamentally important to be putting resources, even limited, in this direction. Yes, we have to be about mission. Yes, we have to help the poor. But this is important, too. This isn't extravagance and waste. This is significant for our, our, our communication of the fullness of, of beauty, even in these little things. Yeah, it's, it's worth remembering who it was who complained about uh, using things mm-hmm. that seemed extravagant instead of giving it to the poor. Yeah, in that's the Gospels, it's, it's important to remember that. That's, that's a that's a beautiful right. Right. beautiful point. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, one of the things I find, you know, as we were talking about census, um, our church celebrates communion weekly, and they took a great deal of care to find really good bread from a bakery that they they bake the loaves special for us Mm. and we pick them up in the morning and bring them in and it is really good bread. (laughs) And one of the elders, when, when, uh, when we were serving communion, one of the elders I've noticed He'll, he'll rip off a piece of the bread, and before he takes it, he'll always smell it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, then, then we'll commune together. He does the same thing with the wine, and by the way, it's wine. <laughs> it's not managed. Um, uh, and, and, and again, it's, it, it's a wine that, that is a, a pretty decent wine. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the argument, by the way, for wine against grape juice is um, in the Psalms, we're told that wine gladdens the hearts of men. And the key to gladdening the hearts of men is the alcohol in it. <laughs> not, and grape juice does not gladden the heart of anybody. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So anyway. It, uh, it's a good way to think of your sanctuary as a royal feasting room. So just, okay, well, how would you arrange it? To, even if it's a fairly, you know, utilitarian space, yeah. you know, that to me becomes the royal feasting room. We yeah. go and you smell wonderful bread. So... Yeah, yeah. The, the, the traditional liturgy talks about um, communion being a foretaste of the feast to come. Right. We're getting the first course mm-hmm. of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yeah. Right. yeah. And you're not going to have little tiny crusts of who knows what <laughs> in the wedding supper of the Lamb. <laughs> it's going to be the best bread, the best wine, mm-hmm. the best yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we have a few more minutes. Any final comments uh, uh, anybody want to make? I, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to go on here and here, you know, on this topic about. I'm I'm fascinated by it, and uh, you know, I used to spend a lot of times when I lived, especially in, in in UK, going to the churches and the cathedrals, and I could spend hours. And I'm a bit of a nerd anyway, so that's probably not what a lot of our, our audience would end up doing. But sometimes do it if you get a chance to, and actually pay attention to the detail and why it's there, and don't just assume it's there for a wrong reason, you know? know, One beautiful thing that I like to do is sketching, and so sometimes the way, photography takes it, it's an instant sketch, and yes, it records information, but really, and this is a person that doesn't even sketch, just grab a sketchbook and go find a pretty spot and actually pay attention. You find all the little details, you find that little symbol that is trying to communicate the gospel. There's so many wonderful things uh, that I would encourage people (laughs) to do themselves, to do their 
with their children. I mean, our children has always loved to sketch, and so it's a, it's just a way of looking. In this case, at a church building, one that you find beautiful, and go look at it very close. Yeah, you know, I, I ran into uh, a story about a guy who was uh, taking a class on ichthyology, fish, and his um, his professor told him to make observations of this one kind of fish. And he came up with a bunch of observations. And the guy said, you haven't even touched it. And what he told him to do is draw the fish in as much detail as possible. And the more he looked at it, the more detail he saw, hmm. and the more he added, and so on. And it got to the point where he, he just had hundreds and hundreds of observations about this fish hmm. by taking the time to simply sketch it out. He says, to this day, when he draws a fish, that's what he draws. Yeah. You know? But, but, but that idea of sketching, I think, is really good because it forces you to look closely, which we don't typically do. Yeah, you have Tolkien sketches, you know, Chesterton sketches, Chris Wiley sketches. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we, we love that piece of Chris. Yeah. Well, well, it is interesting. I, re I remember years ago reading about a scientist who would train young scientists to look at nature the right way by sketching. And he would come back and look at their sketches and go, keep going and keep going, and they would get frustrated and keep going. And eventually, the phenomenal detail and beauty was, was able to be seen, which just looking and observing on the surface could never address. And you're talking a scientist and a materialist recognizing that depth and richness to creation. And to think we have something a bit deeper, all of that as it is able to shine something of the glory of God. Mm. And if we think that is insignificant <laughs> in any way, we're missing, I think, uh, we're missing heaven <laughs> as yeah. it is, is, is exhibited through the creaturely. Yeah, I was thinking of the theology of the gift, that God is a giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1. Yeah. And sometimes our eyes and our ears aren't open to some of the gifts that are right in front of us. So if we develop a sense of the good, the true, and the beautiful together as a triad, an inseparable triad, then we can praise God and worship God uh, for the beauty of His holiness, the beauty of creation, the beauty of human beings who are reflecting His glory and so on. And it adds a tremendous richness to life as we enjoy it and also, I think, to the witness of the church mm. to present the good, the true, and the beautiful to a world that is missing all three. Yeah, amen. Yeah. <laughs> well, in honor of Chris, who is not here, I think we need to bring this in for a landing. <laughs> and uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, David Stocker for hosting us at, uh, at the PCA General Assembly and for your generosity in supporting mm -hmm. the podcast. Amen. Thank we you. really appreciate that. And Doug, um, Doug Grotheis, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to have you on and uh, really enjoyed our time. So... Um, I think that about wraps it up. So uh, I, I'm not going to go through Chris's normal ending, so we'll just call it here. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye. Bye. That was fun. That was real fun. Yeah. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.